This is the workshop called Preaching to Image Bearers. There was a handout at the back. Does anyone need the handout? There was some paper at the back. I think it was at the back. Almost out. They're almost out. So the people who made the copies didn't think I'd be very uh, popular. So. No. They're probably banking on some people going online on it. Here, we need one up front, too. If we could, that'd be great. Maybe I should get one. No, I'm just kidding. I'm good. I'm good. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for all the... Uh, blessings you've poured out in the conference so far. Thank you for the fellowship we can have and encouragement. And we we do take comfort and uh, hope in the fact that you are God and that you rule. And your plans and purposes will not be thwarted by human hand. And we would ask that you would, even as we've talked, uh, send a, a revival among your people, an awakening of the advance of the gospel. Lord, it, uh, we, we long to see the Lord Jesus receive the glory that is due his name. And because of that, we want uh, to be faithful to the word. Uh, please help us in this session that uh, as we think about a theological truth and then what implications it has for our preaching, that, uh, that it might be helpful. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, here's the, the basic thesis I'm operating from, is that, that uh, because we're made in the image of God, we have distinctive human capacities that should be intentionally considered when we prepare for and deliver sermons. Right? So God has made humans in his image, and, and, and that, that should be a part of how we're thinking about what we're doing in preaching. And so it, it, uh, what I want to do is sort of survey that ground theologically, then just draw out some implications and sort of uh, sprinkle applications in along the way on that. Um, so, so when we talk about the image of God in man, all right, there are, that, that is mean we're different than the rest of the creation. And uh, there is theological debate about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with uh, uh, the position I've held is actually rooted in what I was taught and then probably extended a little bit past it. Uh, with, uh, and probably that extension is just, uh, I hold it probably a little more firmly. And, and that is that, that the primary focus of the image of God is mankind's personal, spiritual, and moral resemblance to God. All right, so we, have a per, we are persons. We have a moral component and a spiritual component that resembles God. And, and as McCune says, I think in your notes there, it's not limited to God's communicable attributes, uh, that is the perfections of the infinite God that can be possessed in a finite way by human beings. That's, there's lots of ways to categorize attributes, communicable, incommunicable, greatness, goodness, that what, what McCune is simply saying here, because he tended to go greatness, goodness, but is that there are attributes that we as image bearers can reflect. We can know things, but we can't, we don't have omniscience. Right. So so we we can reflect them in those kinds of ways. Uh, and I would add physical resemblance. And that's the one that's perhaps a little more debated. So let me just throw my reasons out there. All right. And these are these are um, not really probably unique to me. I'm just sort of collating quickly because of the nature of it. Um, when Genesis says make in our image it immediately is immediately demonstrated in a corporeal, right? He makes us in bodies. <laughs> so, so it seems like the weight assumption would be we reflect God on that level in some way. Uh, human existence is unitary, body and spirit, right? We're, we don't adopt a platonic view that says um, humans are spirits that inhabit a body, but the body is really just sort of like a shell or casing to the real person. No, the real me is immaterial and immaterial, uh, material. And that's why we have the resurrection is going to have a material element, 
right? So human existence is always going to have some bodily element. Uh, perhaps it'd be good to look at this one. Genesis chapter five. There's a parallel that's drawn here that I think at least points in this direction. All right, so look at 5.1, Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he, God, made him man in the likeness of God. He created the male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Now notice verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image and named him Seth. So the parallel is between God and Adam. Adam is in the likeness and image of God. And then when Adam has Seth, it says, in his likeness and his image. Right? And I don't think Moses is saying uh, exclusively that Seth had a personal, moral, and spiritual resemblance to Adam. Right? It, it seems to be, it's like he's another human. And a part of that is the whole package, right? He, 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 he bears the likeness of Adam in that regard. I think another way of looking at it would be that since the incarnation was planned before the foundation of the world, what the Son of God would be like would be taken into consideration in forming the first Adam, right? You don't have... You don't have it working the other way. God makes the first Adam and then he decides, oh, then that's what my son will have to be like. Right. But that the express image of God's person, which is Jesus, actually is the template. So in that sense, um, you know, Christ is actually the archetype for the type. <laughs> And, and I think that's the case. Uh, perhaps the, the most significant to me uh, would be the fact that I think the human body, and this would be Robert Raymond in his theology book, um, the human body actually mirrors God's capabilities. All right, so listen, listen to Psalm 94.9. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? So what you have is the capabilities of the human body are actually a reflection of what God's capabilities are. Right? Did the one who formed the ear, can he not hear? Right? The one who formed the eye, can he not see? And the point is, you know, God can hear. God can see. He knows these things. And that actually is reflected in your very constitution. Right? You, when you recognize that you're made in the image of God, you would know that God has these capabilities. Right? So in that sense, it has a reflective. Uh, obviously, the big problem for it is, is that God is spirit. So how does that work? Well, that's the, that's the fourth one I gave you, right? The eternal plan of God was that the Son of God would become incarnate. So, so there could be, in that way, the, 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 the creation takes into account what the Son would be like and therefore becomes the pattern for us in that. At the end of the day, I, you know, I don't think it's the kind of thing like if... Uh, that you, you say, I'm willing to, you know, burn at the stake over the physical resemblance side. You'd have to come to your own conclusion on it. Um, I, I think it does because I think there's a unitary nature of, the, of, uh, of human existence. I put a table in there because I wanted to, I wanted to just, uh, and I'm going to try and make the case when we get to the preaching side of it, that when we talk about the image of God in man, we are not something, talking about something that was just at the creation and then lost at the fall. Right? That in fact, and I'll make the case a little bit more in a few minutes, that, that post-fall humans are considered in the image of God. Genesis 9, 6. 
Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So the penalty of capital punishment is because it's an attack on the image of God. In James chapter 3, James confronts the kind of hypocrisy of blessing God and then cursing those who are made in the likeness of God. So, so cursing people post-fall is still an attack on the image of God. So the image of God must not have been obliterated or removed. And I think most people agree with that. I think the, te- the issue comes in is that when you start to talk about the image of God theologically, you talk about both his constitution and his knowledge of God. Right, that, that man was made to know God and have a true knowledge of God. And so some actually argue because man's knowledge of God was removed in the fall, so was the image. And now you only have the likeness, right? So they, they sort of split things out that way. And I just think that's overplaying it. But if what I'm saying is true... And I think it is, since Genesis 9, 6 and James 3 say that. It also helps us understand what happens at regeneration. right? Because Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24 says, Put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. So the new man is actually a work of God's creation according to the image of of the one who made us. And Colossians 3.10 is very clear about that as well. We're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who made us. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. That there is some work of restoration of the image of God in man that has happened by virtue of the new birth. So that that explains the two columns, right? So if you look at the image of man in the unregenerate person, the intellect is darkened or blinded, alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. That's the language of Ephesians 4. Uh, In terms of the will, it is in bondage or slave to sin, Romans 6, 17, and 20. And I think the emotion or the affections are dominated by the flesh, okay, in terms of Galatians 5, 19 through 21. And I'd say the struggle there is always the word emotion, because not everything in 5, 19 to 21 would be emotion. But the inclination, the affections are towards sin. In terms of spirituality, the capacity for fellowship with God, we are alienated and hostile against him. Our worship has become false and corrupted because we have suppressed the truth of God and substituted the creature for the creator. Right. So so man still has a capacity for worship, but it is corrupted by sin. So that we actually have turned away from God and not glorified him. And in terms of eternal life, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In terms of the morality aspect, that has to do with responsibility and conscience. Uh, With regard to responsibility, we're described as unable and unwilling to please God in Romans 6 through 8. And in terms of conscience, the conscience has become hardened. Now, when regeneration happens, God does a work in those same capacities, right? So our mind is illumined or opened. The eyes of our understanding have been opened. The veil has been lifted, right? We have received something from God by which we may know truth. In terms of our volition, sin is no longer our master, but we actually have been brought under a new master and we're to be a slave of righteousness. In terms of the, the, uh, the affection side, it now would be the spirit producing the fruit of the spirit. And, and, uh, I think you could make the case that almost all of those, uh, involve, uh, relationships, Right. And are the expression of our personal nature. Right. Love, joy, peace. We're moving toward. I don't think it's like an abstract love, joy and peace. It's it's actually in the context of Galatians five. It's the divisiveness and conflict of the fruit works of the flesh versus what the spirit is producing in us. 
right? And and that's that's the outworking of what should have been uh, in the garden and forward had man not sinned. In terms of fellowship, we've been reconciled to God. In terms of worship, we can now worship in the spirit and in truth. Um, I I. And I'm trying to avoid like a million mini sermons here, right? But when I take John 4, when Jesus says uh, those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, that John 4 sits after John 3, in which Jesus confronts Nicodemus that he must be born again, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Right? The work of the Spirit produces Spirit. So when Jesus says you must worship in Spirit and in truth, it presupposes the new birth. Right, That you actually have to have the work of the Spirit to enliven your spirit so that you can actually worship God. Because apart from that, your spirit is dead and you cannot. All right, So we are restored to the capability to worship God in Spirit and in truth. We are made alive, not just that we will have a life given to us at the end of all things, but that we actually have been made alive and that life will never end. Right. That's why it's eternal. And in terms of responsibility, we go from being unable and unwilling to please God to able to please God. God is at work in you to want and work for that which is pleasing to him. All right. And. And I think that's a fundamental desire. And again, this is like side sidebar debate. But sometimes people go through uh, go through Romans eight, and they look at flesh and spirit there as as realms in which a Christian can be moving. And that's not Romans eight, right? He says you're not in the flesh if indeed the Spirit of Christ is in you. And if you do not have the spirit of Christ, then you're not his. <laughs> right. So he's talking about believers and unbelievers in Romans eight there, not not carnal and spiritual Christians. Kind of you want to have that fight. Go to Galatians five flesh and spirit fight there. But if you're in the flesh in Romans eight, then you don't have the spirit of Christ. And that's why you're unable to please God. Because you've never been born of God. You don't, you're not indwelt by the Spirit of God. But once the Spirit comes to dwell in you, you are able to put to death the deeds of the body. Right? You are actually to live a life that's pleasing to God. And, and that's because something has actually happened to you. Right? And that's in, in these like simple statements, but they're actually tied to profound views of sanctification. If, if you're actually not changed in the new birth, that's a very different view than you actually have been changed. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And God's at work in you to want and work for what pleases him. All right. Something has happened and it's tied to this issue of, of the human capacity to walk in fellowship with God and and obey God. And then conscience, the goal of the instruction, right, would be a good conscience. God can work. Uh, actually, in one fundamental sense, our conscience has been cleared of its debt. And this is, I mean, I don't think I, I would not suggest I've got this all completely figured out, right? But it's clear in, in Hebrews that the person who has been redeemed uh, should not have any conscience problem with approaching God. The continual offering of the sacrifices were precisely because they had a conscience issue. The once for all sacrifice of Christ is supposed to have eliminated that barrier. Right. I now have access to God on the righteousness of Christ. There is no sentence of judgment against me so I can come confidently and and my conscience has been restored to a place of fellowship with God. Uh, yet we are not all that we ought to be. And I think there's, there's still that process of sanctification happening, but there was a fundamental altering of it, right? That, that God has done something in the new birth. And, and um, so if I can just sort of pause right here, right? Um, I think it's really important for us to fully appreciate the right side of that table, Right, because sometimes we're preaching to believers as if they're only over on the left side of the table. 
right? Our, our, our stance toward them is as if they have not experienced the new birth. And, and so I think, uh, I think it's important for us to, to at least grapple through, uh, uh, wrestle through and come to grips with this, right? Are we preaching to people who actually are primarily displaying characteristics of being dead? Or are we actually, are we actually holding forth the word of life to people whose eyes have been opened, right? Whose, whose heart has been turned toward it, who've been reconciled to God. And, and actually have within them the work of the Spirit so that they want to please God, right? That, that we're, we're actually trying to affirm and encourage um, as well as confront and challenge, right? And, you know, I, if any of you have been around for, here for a while, you know I'm not like just the bundle of positivity. All right, so, so you're not hearing Joel Olstein here say this. What, what I am saying, though, is sometimes we can craft our sense of preaching in only sort of negative terms and presuppose that the hearers are, are, are miles from God and hostile to God. And, and if that's the case, then, then we might be preaching to goats, not sheep. Right? And that's a possibility. But we also should recognize and have confidence in the work of God among those who've been regenerated to be receptive to the word. Right? That, that they're going to, they're, there's going to be an internal testimony to the authority of the Word of God that comes from the indwelling presence of the Spirit. And, and we, should, we should have that in our theological frame. Right? I mean, it, sh- it should be there. If they're on the right side of that, that column, uh, that's, that's a good thing, <laughs> right? It's a good thing, and, and we should recognize. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? You know, I've read a long time, a while ago that I shouldn't say, does that make sense? Because it puts you in the, in the feeling like, well, if I say it didn't make sense, it's insulting the speaker or I'm an idiot, right? So any questions on that? Because <laughs> I'm neither an idiot nor are you, so let's just talk, right? Well, I know about me. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, so one question, you know, one of the things you said, the image of God, the, the physical part of that, but I noticed that that's not on this chart. Right. So I'm just curious. That would be your resurrection. That would be the book. Okay. Yeah, so I don't, uh, I think Romans 8 would be saying we're waiting for that, <laughs> right? The redemption of our bodies. So, so I guess if I were to put one down there, I'd put, you know, under the curse and anticipating the resurrection. We're groaning for that. I don't, uh, I don't think I would see any immediate, present, physical restoration happening uh, because of what Romans 8 would say. We're, we still feel the effects of the curse, and, and the, the, the gift of the Spirit is the groaning for that part of it to be reversed. Yes. Might we not think of that though in terms of the sanctification that we are putting members to death, Colossians three. Yeah. That that we're actually though it's not finalized, it will not be finalized until yeah you know, in, a, in a complete way until um, glory. But that even now our sanctification process does in fact involve the right use of the body. Yeah, I, I would not. I would not disagree with that. I would. What I would say is, I I probably take um, mortification as being both material and immaterial. Right? There are sins of the spirit that are to be put to death. So, I would. I I would just have to think through what you're saying. But there's no doubt we are embodied, and if we think being spiritual is somehow uh, going to ignore the body, that's a that's a a, a serious problem. So, good. Anything else? All right. So, uh, preaching implications. 
Uh, you're probably familiar with the old, uh, the old definition of preaching by Phillips Brooks. Preaching is communicating divine truth through human personality. You ever hear that? Just about anyone who took a homiletics class somewhere along the way took, heard that. I actually like the way Wearsby sort of tweaked it, and I think I have this in your notes, right? Preaching is the communication of divine truth through human personality to human personality for the building up of God's people to the glory of God. Right, because if you're if you're preaching, you're not doing it in abstract. Right, you're doing it to an audience, and and you have to take into consideration that audience in order to actually, I think, uh, faithfully preach. And this is uh, again could be a much broader thing, but when I teach homiletics one. Uh, I teach like an eight-step process to try and break it down to goals, the first five of which are under the scriptures, right? Or I like straining the liturgy, I go passage. And there's five steps connected to that where you're just focused in on uh, the, the, the knowing and understanding the text. And then steps six, seven, and eight are actually the people to whom you'll be preaching, Right, because every sermon actually has to be tailored to the people to whom you're preaching. Because they don't all stand in relationship to the text in the same way. Right? And the way I usually illustrate, like I did, I did this uh, thing I did last year when I was right at the start of, of uh, Ham 1 in the spring semester. So I was, uh, I was doing our children's ministries on Wednesday night, and we were working through Proverbs. And so then I was going to be preaching in our Christian school, the 7th to 12th grade, and in seminary chapel. So school chapel Wednesday morning, kindergarten through 5th uh, graders on Wednesday night, seminary chapel on Thursday morning. Same text, all three. Right? So the same truth, but obviously I had to, I had to, the last three parts of the sermon, I had to do a lot of different things when I go to, so, okay, say, what do I need to explain for them to understand this? Right? Each group had different needs in terms of explanation. And in fact, when I went to press at home for argumentation, there were different needs there. And application, right? Making application to seminary students versus elementary students or teenagers, Right. So the but the passage means the exact same thing, says the same thing, means the same thing. But the minute you move it into contact with people, you actually are going to have a different sermon to some degree. Right. Because the idea that you just sort of write your sermon in the abstract and then you can preach it to whomever is not actually, I think, uh, uh, an understanding of what the sermon is, <laughs> and and it's probably not going to be that effective when you start you know preaching on on uh, you know issues that apply to an elementary student to a seminary student or vice versa, right? It it doesn't make sense. So so it's not just through human personality that is God is using a person as his spokesman. You are actually preaching it to people. And, and that means we then should be taken in consideration. Uh, specifically, we would do this, the people to whom we're preaching. That's what I just illustrated. But I actually think it, it also has sort of a preceding thing that says, I'm preaching to people, not things. Right? I'm, I'm preaching to humans who are made in the image of God. And that should affect my my thinking about them as I would move into the sermon. You know, that's the, I started to say, does that make sense, right? But I don't want to say that. You see the connection that I'm making. All right, so two things about that. The first would be that then preaching should address the whole person. In its approach, right, we should be recognizing that we should be going for mind, will, and emo affections. Right. And, and, and this, this is, again, I hope is like sort of a given. But one of the things I think can happen is when we start to really emphasize the passage part of it and get serious about exposition, it is possible for us to 
overdose on the intellect to the exclusion of the others. And we think our job is just to deliver data, right? So our message becomes this word is used 25 times in the Greek New Testament. And Paul uses it 14 times. And in our book, it's used three times, which may not be bad to say, but it's really actually treating it more like we're just shifting information to them. Right. And 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 so we start to become like a, a, a you know, a, a researcher who's then just going to share his research and just sort of leave that there for them to figure out what they should do with it or how they should respond to it. And tell them what to think. Well, we should tell them what to think if it's God's thoughts. I'm saying we need to help them embrace it. And then live it out as well. That's what I would be pushing toward. Right. I, I do want to have their thoughts shaped by God's thoughts. And and so we want them to know if I could, what I, I would say it this way. Right. My goal is that I want them to know and understand what God has said. Uh, I want to help them embrace. And remember it. <laughs> Right. I want to I want to press it in so that they embrace it and remember it. And then they they actually live it out, apply and live it out. So my preaching should be explanation. Traditionally, we call it argumentation and application. I'm moving toward that. And and I've and I'm trying to bring in all of that. What. Uh, the relationship between the passage and the people will actually determine which of those probably has the most emphasis in the message. All right. So if it's something that I think they may not know and understand, then my message may be primarily explanation. If it's something that I think they know, but maybe they're resistant toward then my sermon might be primarily argumentation, right? If I think they know it and they're generally positively disposed to it, but they're not actually acting on it, then it may be primarily application, okay? So, so that's, that's, I think, a part of when we're actually going. Our, so where is the place that this message needs to sort of press in because I'm looking at people who have more than an obligation than just answering a Bible trivia question when we're done, right? The test when they walk out of the auditorium is not going to be, can they answer these 10 questions about the facts, right? The word of God was given for their transformation, so it's going to be, has it changed the inclination of their heart? And are they going to be a doer of the word? And so I need, I need to be thinking that way and, and not, not, uh, not minimizing that. And that's why sometimes um, we, need to, we need to be pushed. And I would say this is, um, this is why it's hard to do Saturday special sermons that are really full, fully developed sermons. Because usually, if it's a Saturday special sermon, it's going to primarily focus on the explanation, if you're, if you're wired for exposition, right? If you're a speech giver, it's going to be probably wired for storytelling and application. But if you actually are committed to the Word, then you're going to spend all of your time digging and, and gathering, and then you're going to go, hmm in terms of thought process about trying to convince and apply, that's going to get short, short shrift, right? And, and I guess if you have to short, short shrift it, that's probably the place to do it because you do have a helper <laughs> who can be doing that in their conscience, right? But I don't think we want to set a pattern of ignoring those things or minimizing them in that way. We should be trying to have uh, the full... Or it. And I, I'm going to do this like really quick because this is not, um, I mean, basically, here, here's, actually, I didn't want to do it that way. So I did it already. I'm not used to doing boards. I know I did almost draw everything on my iPad, but 
and you can probably see why I don't draw a lot. All right, but let's go. Man's made in the image of God. We've been talking about it in the conference. Galatians, or Genesis 1, 26 and 27. 1 Corinthians 11, 7. Man fell into sin and rebellion. He did not have the image of God destroyed. He's still in it. At the new birth, that work of restoration has begun. That's Ephesians 4, 24. 3, Colossians 3, 10. All right. If I come all the way up here and I look at Romans 8. 29, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So glorification is the full and final restoration of the image of God. Right? What we were made to be here and rebelled against, Christ came and has established the pattern for us. He's the express image of his person. We're going to be conformed to the image of his son. And that will happen, 1 John 3 says, when we see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will be conformed to the image of his son in its fullness. A text that I think is really important for understanding our job as preachers, is 2 Corinthians 3.18, preachers, counselors, disciples, right? We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. All right, what is that? Right? We're beholding the glory of the Lord. That's the image, into the same image. So, so it's a progressive transformation into Christ's likeness. Right? And it's from glory to glory. That is, the more we're conformed to Christ, the more we're reflecting his glory. Right? So it's a God-centered, Christ-centered transformation. We are genuinely being changed. That was my point about that column. We have had for a long time in, uh, in uh, our heritage, going back into the 1800s, right, which would precede fundamentalism, but so, so post-Reformation evangelicalism, fundamentalism, evangelicalism, we've had actually views of sanctification that are more counteraction Right? You're never really changed. It's just who's in control of you. White dog, black dog, whichever one you feed sort of controls you. But you're basically, the flesh is going to be the flesh and it's always going to be the flesh. And, and that's why you need to be, you know, you need to have this counteracting balance. That's, that's basically what's going on sort of like in Keswick and, and all those kinds of systems. Right. But but biblical sanctification is you have been changed. So you are no longer the you you were. Right. You have put off and put on. There's been a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are no longer the slave of sin. Right? You have a new master. And that means God has begun this work to move you toward Christ's likeness that he will complete what he began. He will continue until the day of Christ. And how is he doing that? We all with unveiled face. That's the work of illumination. The veil's been lifted because in the context, they're reading Moses and they can't see because there's a veil over their face. But we've had the veil lifted. That's illumination. And we're beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord. The mirror is the word. Okay, because in the context right before it, it's reading the Old Testament. It's reading Moses. Right after it is the gospel. And we're not adulterating the word. All right, so what we're looking into. And, and in that case, this case, it's not a mirror like James 1. All right, that's me walking up to the mirror and seeing what I look like. In this case, what am I seeing in the mirror? I'm seeing the glory of the Lord. So it's like me looking into this and seeing the glory of the Lord. Right? So it's a different use of the idea of mirror, but it is actually still, I'm looking into the word and I'm seeing the glory of the Lord and we are being changed. It's a present to our being changed. From glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So it's the Word changing us as the Spirit uses it to conform us to the image of Christ. 
So that's what I'm after when I'm teaching the word, preaching the word. Right. The progressive transformation of the new believer, the, the, the believer into the image of Christ. How am I pursuing that in in my preaching? And so so this is is what God is doing in a Christ centered, spirit empowered work through the word. And I should be thinking that about the people who are listening to me. And I'm trying to therefore get them into the word. So the word can be changing them. And that change is going to be the full reflection of the character of Christ, which is the image of God. And so that right column becomes important as a part of how am I helping people grow to Christ's likeness? How am I helping them reflect God's personal, spiritual, moral nature? All right. Questions? First illustration with the, the three different groups right. makes perfectly good sense. Here you've got people all up and down that stairway right. from all the age groups at once. Right. Now, now how are you relating it to the people you're talking to? Yeah, well, I, I would say the text itself is going to control that, right? So, so um, I mean, if I've got... Uh, if I've got a, the, you know, I would operate with this. All right, so I've got my my text. There's a central idea, right? Or I mean, I I tend to use the word focus. So what's the focus of this passage? And that becomes the focus of my sermon. Then then I, I that's going to drive it all. So if I have a diverse audience, then I'm going to have to reflect some of the diversity of that. Right, but it, we're getting, a, hopefully I can make this clear, but we, we talk about, what we talk about really is uh, uh, abstraction, right? Here's a concrete situation and a concrete situation. Usually between them, there's some abstract, like if I said, if I said this is a poodle and this is a German shepherd, you'd go, what do they have in common, right? They're dogs. That's, that's what we mean by moving up the ladder of abstraction. What's the commonality between them? So what I'd be doing is more diverse my audience is, I'm going to have to be moving up here. Okay, so what do they share in common? I may be having more general application as the primary deal, because this applies to all of us. But then I may stop and go, so that may mean if you're in this context, it would look like this too. Right. Or it may look like this. I might come down to some concretes, but if I do recognize I've got, you know, if I'm doing a, a you know, a, if I'm in a passage, you know, where it's a specific issue in the passage and sometimes we have to go. So what do we have in common with them and how would that show up in our day? <laughs> right? I think that first Corinthians 11 passage is a little bit. There are some concretes about the Corinthian situation that are different than our concrete, but there are transcendent principles that apply to them and us, right? We do this, we sometimes don't do it as uh, self-consciously as we should. We're actually moving between the text and its concrete situation and ours, but also sometimes we're going, okay, I've got husbands, I've got wives, I've got single people, right? So what do they all have in common in relationship to this text? And I need to hit that too. That help? Yeah. With, with your three parts, you're, you're also going to have some people who already know the facts, some who are right. hearing it for the first time, some who know the facts but don't agree with it. You know, those three different groups right. as well. So how you determine... I didn't say it was easy. <laughs> I mean, no, no one said it was an easy job. That's why people pay us to spend our time getting ready for it. Uh, what I'd say is, um, I, I, this is my perspective on it, right? Uh, the people who know the truth are probably only going to get lost if you actually just are going on tediously with stuff that people know. You know, the meaning of the is the kind of stuff. I don't think, I think most people, again, who are, love the word, don't mind having the truth rehearsed again, right? And, and so you're rehearsing truths that they know, 
and you're not trying to treat them as if they're ignorant. Right? Like, like this morning, uh, Grant said one time, you, you guys know what this passage says, right? He's trying to say, we, we really need to hear what this is saying and think about it. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence because I know you guys have been exposed to this. So we do those kinds of things to try to show respect to our hearers. Right. I'm not I'm not acting like you're you know, like you just landed from Mars and don't know this. But there are some people who don't. And and, you know, you're you're trying to help them see that. Right. You're trying to press that. And not every and, and the person, say, who is resistant to the truth and I'm pressing it down for him. The people who agree with it are going to be going, yeah, that is why this is important. It's not like they're going to go, well, shut up. I already buy it. I mean, they might, but if they're doing that, then there's probably a bigger problem, right? If they're actually, if their heart is resistant to you affirming the things they believe, then there's probably not a problem in the sermon. There's probably a problem in the relationship. Your last point is I'm primarily a listener now, and, and there are times when, you know, I've heard that, I've heard that, and this is the third time you've said it, but then I try to remind myself the point you just made. That's not true for everybody sitting right. here in this group. And so I, my, my spirit is, okay, remind myself, this isn't all about me. Right. This is yeah. about the whole church. Yeah. And, and, so I, and I think that's the case. And I think even sometimes, like, I mean, I, I know the passages that Grant was preaching this morning. And actually, there were a couple of turns of phrases and points he made that I thought, that's that's a unique insight into that. That that was helpful, right? And I I would think I'm a fairly educated person in terms of scripture, but someone freshly speaking about it sometimes can say it in a way that goes, hey, "That's a good way to say that." That that was helpful, right? And 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 I think again, if we're starting with a disposition that people are there because they they they're there because they love Jesus. Right. And the spirit has worked in them. If we're starting with a, a, a disposition that thinks most people don't want to be here and they really don't like sermons, then I think we've got we've got a problem. Right. We got we're we're you know, I've always I've always tried to think about it as, um, you know, if if I if if I'm having to go to battle over something to get get this through, then the the issue probably is I need to step back and and recognize there's something bigger going on, right? And I've got to work on that. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, just, you know, we've all read the word before, we've read it through before, but we challenge ourselves to we afresh. Right. You know, and, and rather than look for details to, to ask ourselves what's God saying to us yeah. as we read it. You know, and it's the same thing when we listen to a scripture, to a sermon. Yeah, and the, and the thing, I, and I say this is that when I'm teaching guys in leadership stuff at the church, at the seminary, is um, you know we even when we sometimes think I've said this before, we need to remember um, some people weren't there, right? I mean, because they could have been gone, or they could have been working nursery, or they, whatever. They weren't there. Some people were there, and they weren't there. <laughs> right because something's going on in their life and it just didn't resonate i mean i've had to explain. i remember years ago the first time that really just like sort of slapped me in the head was i was thinking why didn't they cover this in a class and i pulled out the folder and started looking through the notes and they had covered it right i was in the class and it was in the notes and i had no recollection that they had covered it the problem wasn't the teacher the problem was me and it could have been for whatever reason Right. And, and we need to realize when we're shepherding people. Right. We've got people like that. I mean, there may be something going on in their life and they hurt. You know, you've said this the fourth time you've said it. And they, they come up to you after the service. And go, Man, that was so good. I can't. I had never heard that before. And you're thinking. How can you say you've never? I mean, I, I've said this like I almost feel like I'm repeating myself. I've said. But that's just that's a part of the deal. And, and I don't think I think we just have to. Live with that, right? Because Paul says, you know, it's good for me to remind you again, right? And I, and I don't think we should be bothered by that. Larry, were you? Yeah. Um, I didn't know if you were having a Tourette's twitch or if you were going <laughs> to. Go ahead. Uh, the mind, 
categories fairly easy. It's you know, right. inform, you know, remind, persuade, whatever. You get to the will and the affections. Right. More closely related, it seems. Yes. And there's some case, you know, you said, well, you just argue for naked obedience, no matter what you feel like or love. Right. And you have Chalmers, you know, his purifying or... Expulsive affection, right? Yeah. How, when you're thinking about that, how do you relate the will and the and the affections in terms of application of what you're right? Appeal to one, appeal to the other, both. Is there an order? Yeah. So, so, and that's a part of where I, I um, here's what I say is I think we can't really subdivide them, right? We talk about them that way, but um, I don't. I'm not inclined to something that I don't know. Right, and what I know about it probably affects my inclination. My judgment on it is whether I'm inclined or disinclined, right? So, so I can't take the intellect and move it to a separate category. And, and my inclinations, my affections are going to have some element with my will. So I, I think they're all clustered together. I think the part I would be trying to say is we sometimes think if we just give information, it will do the other. And what we have to do is recognize that there is probably uh, there are probably times resistance that needs to be directly confronted. So they change their view on it. Right. And and sometimes uh they're just not connecting how, what, what, what would this look like? Right? I mean, um, you know, they, they just, they don't see the connection point in the obedience. And so we need to help them see that, right? We need to help them have some clarity on it. So I think partly I can answer it by the next section, which I'm going to have to probably, because we're, is it, we're done it. 11.45, so I guess seven minutes. All right. Um, so here's, here's what I'd say. These, these principles that I'm stating here, I have five of them that I think they should shape the way we think. We're preaching to people who are able to reflect on themselves, right? We know that from the scriptures. Haggai says, you know, uh, set your heart on your ways, right? That, that they're actually able to sort of step outside of themselves and look at themselves. That's what we call self-consciousness, right? And we're preaching to people who have that capacity that can really sort of set outside of themselves and look at themselves. And the scriptures address them that way. And I would suggest to you that we should preach that way. A part of what we need to do is get them to actually sort of step back from where they are and look at it. Okay, so, so um, and, I, and I think that's a part of the process of going after the will is not like the direct salt, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> right, you can do that. But it also can be you're going, hey, you think about this here. <laughs> right, look at the path that you're on. Is, is that path a path of obedience? Is that a path that reflects this truth? I mean, have you, have you thought about this? Right? So, so we're operating with questions. In this case, I think we'd be doing the James 1 kind of mirror. Right? We're trying to actually hold up the mirror of the word and have them look at themselves in light of it. And that's what the, that's what the person does, right? They, see what needs to happen, and they just turn away. So a part of what you're actually trying to do is understand that they have the capacity for that dynamic and make sure you're weaving into your preaching that kind of self-consciousness that you're actually involved in reflecting on your current thoughts, actions, dispositions, Right? When you find yourself thinking this way about God, and sometimes the way we have to do that is actually by creating, I'm going to use the word character, it's not really one, but creating a personification of somebody doing that. Right? Hey, you know, you know in the world like we're in, you know, we can find people who are 
facing difficult situations and here's the thoughts that go through their mind. And when I start doing that, all of a sudden they're going, well, that thought goes through my mind. <laughs> right? That's, that's self-awareness, self-consciousness. I can actually help them see themselves by painting out that picture for them. And that's a part of how God would change them, right? They're actually starting to be able to pass a judgment on it. And that's the second point. Humans have a conscience and moral awareness. God made them with this capacity that is a judicial capacity. And again, conscience, we could spend a lot of time, but it basically, it's not legislative, really. It's just judicial. <laughs> this is wrong. This is right. It, it executes that kind of judgment in it, and it has a sort of compelling nature to it. And, and so what we need to realize is that activating or sensitizing the conscience, I think, is crucial to spiritual change and growth. So, so am, I, am I making certain that in my preaching and teaching, I know that a part of this needs to be targeted at the conscience in a way that either is aimed at, uh, at uh, triggering, so to speak, a judgment by their conscience that they are wrong in relationship to this text, or by fortifying and sensitizing their conscience for future, right? Because I'm now helping set the standard for their conscience, I mean, the way we sometimes talk about is binding the conscience. I would say the only thing we can bind, we, the only thing we ought to bind the conscience with is the Word of God, All right? And but when we're standing up and saying, so this is the Word of God, and that means it is wrong to do X, Y, and Z, then what we have to do is recognize what we're really after is not just like an abstract statement, but hey, do you, do you buy that? <laughs> Right? Do you realize this is God's standard? And are you going to bow the knee to that standard so that it, it operates as the standard for your life? Right? We're, we're moving toward that. We want them to be equipped. And, and that means, again, we're going more than just giving them the action. We're giving them the rationale. This is, this is rooted in what God has to say. So their conscience is shaped that way. Humans are capable of making choices. All right? God has made us responsible beings and, and treats us as such. Uh, when we talk about freedom of will, what, we mean, what I mean is that man makes spontaneous decisions, not coerced. He's not a robot. He's not determined. All right. He makes choices that spring from his will. Uh, Proverbs indicts the fool because I called to you and you did not choose to fear me. Right. They're they're responsible for it. Man is responsible for the choices he makes. And, and so we need to approach people in that way, because when we preach to people, we we actually need them to recognize that the responsibility is in their court for whether or not if I borrow like the old King James with Elijah. Right. For halting between two opinions. Or the language of Joshua, choose this day. Right. That 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 ball is in their court. And that's actually a good thing because that's what gives them hope. Right. If they're not responsible, then then they're they're basically going to go to passivity and see no hope of change. So I have to actually be preaching in such a way that doesn't diminish the responsibility for their choice. All right now, uh, that doesn't mean. Uh, I mean, I I would set it all in the context of God's gracious work and and His overture and their dependence on Him. And there's a whole lot of theology that you have to do. But what again sometimes it can happen is when we start to tilt toward God's sovereignty, we can actually think that it's not man who responds in repentance and faith, but it actually is the sinner who repents. And the sinner who believes. The issue is where's the source of that? <laughs> right? Are those gifts of God? But but it's the sinner who actually repents. God doesn't repent on behalf of the sinner. 
And so we, we need to have a thought process that honors that when we handle the word so that we call people to meaningfully choose uh, to respond to God's word. And calling for a decision is not decisionalism. Right, so the answer to a false theory is not an equally or opposite false theory. Right, it is to stand on the ground where we should. And, and here's something I think we don't maximize as much, is that as humans can creatively consider alternatives. Right? Proverbs 4.26 says, ponder the path of your feet. Right? So it's like, okay, <laughs> take a look at where this trail is going, which requires imagination. And we have the capability to do that. I don't think Fido is going, I wonder how this day is going to turn out. Right? He's just instinctive. That's what the scriptures talk. Jude says, like instinctive beasts. But we have the capacity, actually, to look forward and go, well, I could go A, or I could go B, or I could go C. And we could actually go, so if I go A and I take the first step, then what might happen? Right? And sometimes we don't do that when we're trying to help people change. Right? We're going, hey, you need to change. And we don't go, so, hey, what would that change look like? <laughs> so here, here's, here's what would, that would mean. And we help show them that. That's actually practical application. We're, we're saying to them, I mean, even if it's some, something as simple as, like, you're trying to get them to take time to pray and read the Word, right? So, hey, you need to do this, you need to do this, you do this, and we ought to. But the reality is, if that person's going to go from a habit of not doing that to a habit of doing that, that means there's going to have to be a lot of changes that have to happen in the fabric of their life. And, and how many believers have been frustrated because they get convicted that they need to change, but they, they actually have not been helped to think through what that would look like. So, hey, here's what, you know, this is the kind of thing, this might have to happen. Here's what you need to do. You know, you need to sit down, you know, with your schedule and, and figure out what needs to change. And you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z to see this carry out. And all of a sudden they start to think, well, yeah, I actually, I could go in that path. <laughs> right? Sometimes God does in his word. He goes, do you realize the path you're on and what it's going to lead to? I mean, God, I mean, God paints out horrifically terrible pictures of the consequence of sin and then says, so, so choose this way. That's appealing to the imagination that they can envision consequences. They can see <laughs> alternatives. And sometimes we don't, we don't do that as thoughtfully as we should, where we're actually trying to call people to something better or, or trying to paint something from which they should be turning away, right, in order to, to carry it out. The fifth thing I'll just say, I mean, I, I believe humans are wired for eternity. So uh, we should be rooting the things that we're pursuing in deep, uh, what I would say is in a deep resonance in their heart for an eternal purpose. All right. They, they, there is something, I think even with lost people, there is a testimony to God's existence that, that is something that we are supposed to zero in on and make appeal to. But I think a believer now has, if you take this, right? I think a believer has this stamped in. <laughs> and we should, be, we should be calling them to that bigger reality. So they step out of the tense. He gets squeezed into just what's going on right now. Right? They've got to come out. In fact, I've, I've said, you're, I mean, you, you take this kind of truth. It's, it's glory to glory, Right? Until a person gets to see that the, the changing of their life is not just uh, to make their life more happy. <laughs> right? I mean, a couple shows up, their marriage is a mess, and basically the husband wants you to change the wife so he can have a happier life. And the wife is, can you change my husband? Or the husband might be going, like, I really need to change because this is miserable. Can you show me how to get rid of this miserableness? And really all they're doing is looking for a, a more productive way to satisfy their selfishness. They're not actually motivated by Christ-likeness and God's glory. 
and it's always going to be a shallow change. You've got to move them out of, hey guys, the most important thing here is what God made you and intends to make you and, and what's going on in your marriage is radically contradictory to that. Until you start to fall in love with the idea that it's really because of Christ and by Christ that the change needs to happen, you're, you're just going to be swimming upstream. Right? And I think our preaching has to take on that flavor, too. Are we calling people to a Christ-centered transformation empowered by the Spirit through the Word? All right? now, obviously, there's a lot more, and these are good questions, maybe just stuff to think about as you, as you think about how you, how you, when you get to this side of shaping the sermon, am I thinking specifically about the kind of people, image bearers, that I'm preaching to? And how might that shape the way I... I explain and and convince and apply.